invite you to open your Bibles with me. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. As a new believer, how did you learn how to pray? It's probably not something you think about a lot, but you learned somewhere, right? Uh, If you grew up in church, I trust that some of your learning to pray was by watching and listening, wasn't it? Maybe your parents took you to prayer meeting and you got to hear older, faithful saints praying. Maybe it was gathering in church and sitting under uh, the pastoral prayer. Or, or maybe it was as your parents led family devotions and you heard your parents pray. Uh, certainly, the disciples learned by watching and, and listening. No doubt they saw Jesus get alone multiple times, at some point even saying, teach us to do that. Right? That, that's helpful because that means it doesn't just come naturally. I trust some of you, as you decided somewhere along the way that this was a spiritual discipline you wanted to grow in, you probably ordered one of the many good books out there on prayer and, and, and read that. And, and all of these are 
useful, viable ways to grow in prayer. But I would submit to you that there's another one that's really important and certainly one that we get to dig into today, and that is by studying the prayers that we see in the Scripture. Uh, And there's a number of reasons I think this is so helpful, but not least because we get to see some of the priorities in prayer of the inspired writers. I think we, we naturally were sort of inclined to have our own priorities in prayer. And so I want to read these biblical prayers and see what some of the priorities are there. And so we get to dig into that very thing today. So if you're not already there, turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to be focusing on this prayer of Paul. So from verse 15 through 23. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 15 through the first part of verse 16. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul starts this prayer with thanksgiving. And I can tell you, if you had time to go back and study all of the prayers of Paul, you would see that this is just standard operating procedure for Paul when it comes to prayer. Paul thanks God. He loves to thank God. He, he leads with this in virtually every one of his prayers. And, and notice here he says it's a consistent thanksgiving. He says, every time I pray for you, which I trust in and of itself was often, and so every time he prays for them, he thanks God. And so immediately we have just a quick takeaway, don't we, for those wanting Scripture to lead us in how to pray. Uh, I would say in looking at this, it'd be useful to audit our prayers and ask the question, how often do we thank God for things? How, how often is, is, is thanksgiving a vital part of our prayer life? And, and I think this is important for a number of reasons. I mean, I think one, it certainly keeps us from praying like the ingrate child on Christmas Day who got 30 gifts but is frustrated that he didn't get 31, right? I think it helps us So we don't treat God like a genie in a bottle. We just come to Him and, you know, kind of rub the lamp and go through the Christian things hoping to get get the goods, right? This brings us to God, thanking Him for who He is, what He's already done. Well, Paul consistently does this. He consistently thanks God. And here he gives us three reasons for this particular thanksgiving. Two of them are explicit, one's implied, and so let's start with the one that's implied. He says, for this reason, I thank God. So you see that, and you have to ask, what's the reason? What's he talking about? And this is the connection, sort of the tie-in to what we were studying together before our Christmas series. The answer to the for this reason is found in verses 3 through 14, right? You may recall, if you were here, that Paul, in verses 3 through 14, broke out into effusive praise of God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Namely, for the stunning reality that if you're a Christian, you can know that you're a Christian because God chose you from before the foundation of the world. Not only did He choose you, He adopted you. Think about that. God adopted you into His own family. And part and parcel of that is the reality that He redeemed us. He he rescued us. We had a problem. It's called sin. And through the blood of Christ, He redeemed us so we could indeed be part of His family. And as part of His family, we were told that He predestined us to a glorious inheritance and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, 
making sure we make it to the end so we could enjoy all of the benefits of what God has done. And thus Paul says he thanks God. He's going to thank God for the Ephesian Christians, to be sure, but he's so clear that God has done this amazing work and that God will most certainly bring it to completion that he begins his prayer of thanksgiving, tying it to his praise. That's the for this reason. The for this reason is because God in his grace chose us, because he set his covenant affection on us, because he sealed us with the Spirit and has changed us and is changing us from the inside out, and Paul thanks God for those realities. So the implied is he's thanking God for what God has done in our lives and the promises of what he's still to do. And second, he thanks God for saving faith. Very specifically, he thanks God for the faith of the Ephesian Christians. He says, I thank God for your faith in Christ. I thank God that you are believing in Jesus. And again, if we tie this with the first point, he's really saying, I thank God that God has opened your eyes. I thank God that you've seen your need for a Savior. I thank God that he's caused you to see a bloody cross as the wisdom and power and glory of God, and that he gave you true faith in him. And third and closely connected, he thanks God for their love for one another. What we would call the love of the brethren. And, and, and this throughout the New Testament so clearly corroborates true saving faith. Notice back in verse 4 that he said, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and he tells us why. And it's not so we just stay the same, right? He says he chose us so that we would be holy. That is, we'd be set apart for him. And we'd be blameless. He chose us so that we'd be different. In chapter 2, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That faith's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so no one may boast. For, he says, we are his workmanship. Listen to God's word here. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, the New Testament consistently teaches that those who are born of God, they're, they're, they're changed by God from the inside out. When we come to saving faith, our lives change because God's very spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we'll come back to this, he, he's given us faith and he's at work in us and changes our lives. And one vital and normative change that you see throughout the New Testament, read the rest of Paul, you see this all over the place. Read Peter, read John. Normative change, expected change for those who have been regenerated, is a new and profound love for the brethren. A love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul not only thanks God for the faith that God's given them, but he also thanks God for the evidence that this faith is really real. And the evidence here is this love that they have for each other. And again, there's application right on the surface here, isn't there? I don't have a lot of time to camp out on this one, but this one's very instructive. Right? Paul is thanking God. He's praising God for evidences of God's grace. I mean, I, I, I look out at this room, and I think of the people who were here this morning to help set up. Why were they here? Well, it wasn't because they didn't want to sleep anymore. It wasn't that the news might not have been interesting or that a little extra time at home wouldn't have been encouraging. It was because of a love 
for, for you, for brothers and sisters, and a desire to set up. I, I look around this room, and I see so many people that I know serve others within the body because of this love for the saints. And we want to call that out. We want to thank God for that because that is a work of God. That is a glorious evidence of God's grace of regeneration. We want to thank God for that. And that's certainly what Paul does here. He thanks God. He thanks God for his sovereign work of choosing the Ephesian Christians, for giving them faith and the love of the brethren that corroborates their claim to faith. Only then does he move on to intercessory prayer and prays that they, and I think you could say by extension we, would grow in the knowledge of God. Look at verse 17. No, I'll back it up to verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So here's a question to ponder when you do pray. What's at the top of your list of things that you pray for, for loved ones? I want us to notice that Paul prays for growth in the knowledge of God. And this is important. No, no Christian would ever say that they've arrived when it comes to knowing God. No, the more we get to know God, the more we recognize we want to know him even more. See, knowledge of God, biblically, is both knowledge of who he is, but also this relational knowledge that he knows me and I know him. And this is an area where Christians, regardless of how long they've been in the faith, want to grow. And Paul's praying precisely for this. Now, the wording in the original is a little bit challenging. In fact, it's interesting that this is an area that the ESV, which I know a lot of us read from, made an important change from my perspective in the 2011 update. So depending on which year your ESV is, it might be a little bit different. It's a small difference, but it's really, really big. It's, it's the difference between an uppercase and a lowercase. They, they changed it in 2011 from the text saying a spirit, lowercase, of wisdom and revelation to, they changed it to, in 2011, the spirit, uppercase S, of wisdom and revelation. And I think the 2011 correction is absolutely correct. Now, it's not an easy text. The syntax is challenging. But in short, I think it's best to understand this as Paul praying that the Holy Spirit might give us wisdom and revelation, or you could say illumination, so that we may know God more. And I, I think 1 Corinthians 2 is a really helpful cross-reference. I invite you to turn over there with me. 1 Corinthians 2 I'm going to read verses 6 through 16, uh, and, and I think this is helpful because in this passage he speaks of the Spirit of God, again, giving us both wisdom and revelation, or you could say illumination. So 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, 
nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, for he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, that is the one having the Spirit, judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So notice what the Spirit of God is doing here in 1 Corinthians 2. He's, He's... He's taking that which is God's, and he's imparting it to the believer. He's giving wisdom so that we can understand God's eternal plan. He's, He's illuminating the believer so that we can understand and thus know God better. According to 1 Corinthians 2, he gives wisdom that the natural man can't have because the natural man doesn't have the Spirit of God. See, only the believer can know God and grow in this knowledge. And it's because God's Spirit is the one who grows us here. And this is a common teaching in the New Testament. If you think of John 14, 15, and 16, the place where Jesus speaks of the Spirit more than anywhere else in the Bible, he says things like this over and over again. He says things like, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things. He says the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. Jesus says he's going to take what is mine. Think about this. Jesus says he's going to take what's mine and he's going to make it known to you. In other words, going back to our Ephesians 1 text, this is not talking about new revelation, okay? As though we're getting some fresh word from God that's not in Scripture. No, this is referring to the Holy Spirit taking Holy Scripture and impressing it deep down into our hearts so that the end result is we know God better. And this knowledge of God, this growing in our knowledge of God is not reserved for some sort of elite Christians, whatever in the world that would mean anyway. No, knowing God is basic biblical terminology for the relationship with God that every Christian enjoys. Now, this is why the New Testament often speaks of saving faith in terms of knowing God. You might think of a passage like, 1 John 2, he's testing whether or not somebody's come to saving faith. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him, right? He could say, by this we know that you're a believer. By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth's not in him. So this knowledge of God then, we would have to say, is more than just Head knowledge, though head knowledge is certainly part of it, just as head knowledge of your spouse is part of your relationship with them, right? If you've been married for any period of time, you obviously know a lot of stuff about your spouse. But it's more than that, isn't it? See, knowledge of God is beautiful covenantal language. It's getting at the reality. He knows us, and we know him. 
It's getting at the reality that he's revealed himself to us, that he's loved us, that he's saved us, that he told us what he expects of us. And as we get to know him, we then start to understand more and more about who he is and what he expects of us. And, 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 and those things then, as we get to know him right, they become more important to us and they start to affect how we think and how we act. And all of that is tied up in growing in the knowledge of God, growing in this relationship with God. So there is head knowledge, but it's far more. Now, biblically speaking, you can know all the facts about God. Right? You could write your own systematic theology, but not know God, precisely because you've not submitted to His will. Remember, the demons know all the facts about God. That's James 2.19. They don't submit to Christ. And so I want to pause here for a minute and say, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you really know God, I want to plead with you that you would make that your highest priority. God has gone to great lengths to reconcile sinners like us back to himself. He sent his son to live the life we couldn't live. He sent his son to go to the cross to pay the punishment we deserved to pay. And if you've never trusted in what God has done, if you've not rested in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, if you've not truly submitted your life to him, you don't know God. And I would plead with you to cry out to him today. Knowing God is relational knowledge of God. It's a covenant relationship with God. Knowing God is growing and knowing what he desires, and living for him. It's relational knowledge of God that Paul prays that we would grow in. And to that end, he goes on and prays that God might grow us in our knowledge of God in three vital areas. And so we're going to make sure that we, in our minds, keep these three areas connected with this idea of knowing God. Uh, Look back at the text so we see these three vital areas that he prays for. I'll pick it up in verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Here Paul prays that God might enlighten the eyes of our heart for the very purpose that we might really lay hold of three vital truths about God and our relationship with him. And before we dig into the three truths, let's consider for at least a moment what Paul means by saying having our hearts enlightened, right? This is obviously metaphorical language. We all know that, the, uh, that our heart doesn't really have eyes. In fact, even heart is being used metaphorically, and this is very typical biblical language. Throughout the scriptures, the heart is spoken of not just as the seat of our emotions. That's how we typically 
want to speak of the heart, right? We'll say things like, you're breaking my heart, my, my emotions, you're making me sad. But in the scriptures, the heart is the center of the whole person. So not only the emotions, the emotions are involved, but not only the emotions, but also the intellect, the understanding, the affections, the inner man in his entirety. And thus when Paul prays that God might open the eyes of our hearts so that we would grasp these three things, he's praying that God might help us to really lay hold of or be gripped by these three truths. What is it that he prays that we'd be gripped by? Well, the first thing he's wanting us to be gripped by is our eternal hope. What he calls the hope to which he's called you. And don't miss how much this prayer is connected to his praise of God from verses 3 through 14. Remember, Paul praised God that he chose us and that he adopted us and that through our adoption we have this glorious inheritance. And this inheritance from verses 3 through 11 is the hope which he speaks of here. Throughout Paul's writings, you can just do a word study on this, this hope refers to our eternal hope, what he calls the hope laid up for you in heaven in Colossians 1. This is the rock-solid, sure hope of every Christian that we will spend eternity in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth. And by the way, if this is something that you haven't thought much about or, or wrestled with, we actually dug into this pretty deeply when we covered verses 11 through 14. So if you're looking at our website two sermons ago, and I would encourage you to dig into that because Paul's saying we need to be gripped by this, right? Paul's already praised God for this, again, in the preceding verses. But now notice that he's praying that we'd be gripped by it. See, our problem is we don't, it's not that we don't know about our eternal hope, right? Christians talk about heaven all the time. Our problem is that we're not really gripped by it. You've probably heard the unbiblical and remarkably unhelpful little quip, he's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. Oh, that's just a load of garbage. Paul understands here the problem is that we're not nearly heavenly-minded enough, right? He wants us to be so gripped by our eternal hope that we would truly understand what's involved here and that we would rejoice in it and that we would live today and tomorrow and every day in light of it. And so, think with me for a minute of some of the many implications of this. I mean, of all the things Paul could pray for and teach us to pray for, why is this so important? Why is being gripped by our eternal hope so important? And the answer has everything to do with our joy, regardless of our circumstances. It has everything to do with our ability to persevere in the midst of the worst trials. It has everything to do with our willingness not to insist on having everything now, knowing and trusting that our best life is actually later. See, brothers and sisters, we need, you need, I need the eyes of our hearts to be opened wide by the Spirit of God so that we can really see and really believe that departing and being with Jesus is actually a good thing. And Paul says in Philippians, passage we all know, to live as Christ, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die, to leave this world, to leave behind our family, to leave behind our children, to leave behind all of our hopes and dreams, he says, is gain. 
question is, do we really believe that? And we're in church, so we say, of course, we really believe that because we know that that's the right thing to say. But I want you to ask yourself, maybe later tonight when everything's quiet and nobody's around, ask yourself, is dying for me today really gain? Do I really live like that? And if, or probably when, you answer no, or I don't know, or sometimes, Follow that up by asking God, pleading with God, to open the eyes of your heart, to continue to show you the beauty and the glory of your eternal inheritance, the joy of spending all eternity in the new heaven and new earth with Him. Paul's praying here for this. And brothers and sisters, we want to pray this for ourselves, for our kids, certainly for one another. We want to pray that God would open the eyes of our heart so that we would really believe and embrace this. See, if we have a weak, paltry view of our blessed eternal hope, we will consistently struggle with that urge to have it all now. Right? If we have a weak, paltry view of our blessed eternal hope, we will consistently struggle with the desire to Give sacrificially of our finances or our time. If we have a weak view of our eternal hope, we will consistently struggle with a willingness to lay down our own lives for the good of others. We will consistently struggle with when things don't go our way right now, being angry with God. But see, when God opens the eyes of our heart and helps us to really be gripped by our eternal hope. It starts to change these things, doesn't it? We could certainly spend the rest of our time there, but we do need to press on. For not only does Paul pray that we really grasp our eternal hope, but he prays that we would likewise be gripped by the stunning reality that we are God's inheritance. Look back at the text. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Second, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I misread this text for years. I just did. For years, I read the second thing as completely analogous with the first. I read the word inheritance And I just assumed that it was talking about my inheritance because that is usually what the New Testament's talking about when that word comes up. But my friend Tom Schreiner actually straightened me out here. Look closely at the text. Notice whose inheritance this is talking about. Look at the text. It says, his inheritance. That's clear in the Greek and in the English, right? Paul already prayed that we'd grasp our inheritance that we lay hold of our hope, here he's praying for something different. Here he's praying that we would lay hold of the riches of his, God's, glorious inheritance. And this is where it should floor us. Look what it is. Look at the text. Do you see it? It's mind-boggling. It's us. (laughs) If you're in Christ, it's you. You, brother, you, sister, are God's inheritance. The church corporately is God's inheritance. 
And this understanding, really laying hold of this, should rock our world for the good. This passage is telling us we are of supreme worth to God. We, the church, are God's inheritance. The church is His treasure. Just think of some of the implications of this one. I mean, I think you can go after this one from a number of different directions. Consider a child feeling like his parents merely tolerate him because they have to. That wouldn't be a very encouraging place to grow up, would it? How about this? How about a bride? You know, the church, bride of Christ. These are biblical analogies here. How about a bride who thinks her husband sort of tolerates her out of covenant obligation? Probably not that encouraging of a place to be a wife, is it? On the other hand, how about when she knows, she knows she's the apple of her husband's eye. There's all sorts of confidence and sweetness in that marriage. The loving arms of her man is the place she longs to be. And see, here we as individuals, and more importantly corporately, we are the bride of Christ. We are God's inheritance. He's gone to amazing lengths to redeem us, and He's thrilled with what He's done. I think sometimes we think, oh, He was happy to sort of do that, but He's just sort of, He kind of tolerates us now, right? We're sinners, and He just, He's thrilled with His church. We are His inheritance. The church brings God joy. That should give us all sorts of confidence and sweetness in our relationship with God. Now, go back to the analogy of a beloved bride one more time, or a child knows that his father loves him. Doesn't that also affect how you live? Right? Think about it. Do you not act differently? You certainly think differently. Our actions come from our thoughts. Do you not act differently if you think somebody merely tolerates you than you do when you know they truly prize you? I mean, certainly a kid who thinks he's just sort of tolerated, I would submit to you over time, he will grow up and not really give a rip what his parents think about him. He just learns to be in it for himself. Nobody cares about him. Somebody's got to care about him, so it's going to be him. On the other hand, when a child knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is loved, that he is prized, that he is treasured, that his father truly takes joy in him, he wants to honor his father. And when we think about this with our relationship with God, we could take it even a step further. When we know that we as the church are the apple of God's eye. We are His inheritance. He went to great lengths to redeem us. He crushed His own Son in our place. He delights in us. We bring Him joy. When we're clear on that, we want our actions, we want our lives as individuals and certainly corporately to make much of Him. The church from every tribe, nation, and tongue is described as the riches of God's glorious inheritance which should make us love the local church all the more. And it should make us desire for our church to honor Him in all we do, how we live together within the church, how we honor God corporately, how we honor one another, right? Individually, people Christ died for, and we want to make much of Him in everything. And again, we could go on and on here with this one as well, but we have one more. And it's related to the first two. 
as both of the first have implications for how we live our lives. Here in this last one, he wants us to know, he wants us to really grasp, to really believe the power, the life-changing power available to all who are in Christ. Look at verses 18 through 23. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. The third and final petition that he prays God would open our hearts to really be gripped by, to really lay hold of, is that we would lay hold of the power that's available to those who are in Christ. And this has everything to do now with how we live our lives. Uh, D.A. Carson says, quote, Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but dead, rich in theory of justification, but powerless when it comes to transforming people's lives, end quote. Here, Paul loads up on terms for emphasis. He prays that God would help us to really know what is the immeasurable or incomparable greatness of his power. And the words immeasurable and greatness are both superlatives. It's as though he's wanting to say, dear Christian, you have the most amazing, the most stunning power in the universe at your disposal. In fact, this is the only one of the three that he elaborates on. And here he elaborates with Christology, right? You could, you could write a whole book on the Christology here. The Christology that he goes to here is glorious. But I do want you to notice that here it's not so much for the purpose of telling us more about Jesus. It's for the purpose that we might grasp the power that's available to us. Essentially, he's praying that we might be gripped by the reality that because we're in Christ, we have the very same power dwelling inside of us, that incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead that seated him at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that power that put everything under his feet and gave him his head over all things. He's saying the very same power that did that is available to you, dear Christian. That's his point. And he's praying that we would really lay hold of that. He's praying that we would really believe that. To live in light of it. And again, this has huge implications for us on a daily basis, doesn't it? Now, real quick, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying, by saying that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He's not saying that we're like little gods or anything stupid like that. That would be blasphemous, and it's clearly not the point. The point is with regards to living for Christ. And right here, at the very beginning of this letter... This letter that in the second half is going to have all sorts of exhortations. He's making it clear we have the power as Christians to obey the commands thrown out throughout the rest of the letter. And he's praying that we'd believe that, that we'd embrace that. 
We'd live in light of that. Brothers and sisters, Paul's praying that we would be clear that we can engage in the fight when it comes to our sin nature and see victory. He's praying in particular that you would not just sort of think, well, I'll never get past that one. No, that we can see victory. No, we're not going to do it on our own strength. But he's saying, because of our regeneration, because we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think about regeneration, right? The Spirit of God says, wake up! And he changes us. But he doesn't just zap us and dart. Right? He, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of God, is dwelling within you if you're a Christian, empowering you to live for Him. And thus we can grow. Throughout this letter, Paul is going to say things that if, if this weren't true, it would be very discouraging. But it's not discouraging because it is true. Paul's going to say things like, Therefore, I as a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He's going to say things like be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. You may be sure of this, that no one who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, will inherit the kingdom of God. He's going to say, be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. So take up the full armor of God and stand firm. That's a command. Stand firm, never wavering from the faith. And here it's clear. He can give us such commands, and we can live in light of them, Because God's own spirit gave us life, dwells within us, and empowers what he commands. And again, the implications are glorious. Paul's praying, and we should pray like this for one another. He's praying and teaching us to pray that we really embrace the power that we have in Christ. In other words, he's praying that we embrace, like I said earlier, that there's no sin that we just sort of give in to. There's no place for the Christian just saying, well, you know, I'm just sort of wired up this way. I will never get past that one. No. Because of the power available to us through the Holy Spirit, we can see victory. Not not perfection. I'm in no way arguing for perfectionistic theology, nor, nor is Paul praying for it. But can we please be equally as clear that there's also no place for defeatist theology for the Christian? Right? We're real clear. We're not talking about perfectionistic theology, but so often we're just embrace defeatist theology. No, because of the Spirit's work in our lives, we can grow. And Paul is teaching us to pray to that end. And so as we wrap up, I just want to tie a couple of these things together as we conclude. I think going back to where we started, I think we learn a lot about prayer through studying biblical prayers, right? They help me to think in terms of praying in categories I don't often pray for. I'm like, Lord, help them to get a good grade. I love them to get into a good college so that they're not going to live at home in my basement. I don't have a basement, but, you know, you get my point, right? I mean, these are things that we sort of naturally pray for, but here we're learning these really important biblical categories, and we want to pray like this. Church, we want to pray for one another. We want to pray for ourselves, that the Lord would truly open the eyes of our hearts 
that we want to pray, church, that we would be gripped by our eternal hope. Boy, just think of the power that's going to come from that. We, 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 we want to pray that we would be amazed, delighted, that we are God's inheritance, that he's not just tolerating us. We want to pray and believe that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive within us, leading us to live for him, to live for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your holy and inspired word. And as we think about this prayer today, I pray for all of us. I pray that you would indeed today and ongoing be about that work of opening the eyes of our hearts so that we might truly see, believe, be gripped by the reality the glories of our eternal hope, that we might be floored by the reality that we are your inheritance, Lord, that we might believe, truly believe, that the power of the Holy Spirit dwells in us to lead us to grow more and more into the likeness of Christ with each and every passing day. And we pray that you would help us with that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.